Today on the Word Preacher Podcast, the language of Revelation, literal descendants of Aaron, and divine equality. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. Our Come Follow Me material for this week will bring us to sections 67 through 70 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started by talking a little bit about the context of this first section that we'll discuss, section 67. In preparing to publish the Book of Commandments, which consisted of revelations that had been received up to that point, um, and later become... uh, including later revelations, the Doctrine and Covenants. It was the forerunner of of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, Joseph Smith asked the elders of the church to testify of the divine origin of the revelations that had been received to that point for the Book of Commandments. Now, some of the elders of the church were quick to offer testimony, but some were not convinced that all of these revelations had divine origin. And part of their concern was the unrefined and inconsistent language that was used by Joseph Smith in these revelations. Um, They kind of had in their minds that Jesus Christ, a perfect God, would have more eloquent and consistent language. Now, in response to this idea... Um, section 67 was received, and it contained a challenge issued by the Lord. Let's look at that. This is verses 4 through 8 in that section. And now I, the Lord, give unto you a testimony of the truth of these commandments, which are lying before you. Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. And you have sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. Now seek ye out of the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. Or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that they are true. But if ye cannot make one like unto it, ye are under condemnation, if ye do not bear record that they are true. Okay, so the challenge issued is, you find the most problematic section, the the worst revelation with terrible language, and you come up with one better, the smartest one of you. You come up with a way to, to do that better. William E. McClellan, who we discussed a little bit last week, he was a former school teacher, and he accepted this challenge to write a revelation that was more in line with what they thought the Lord should sound like. This attempt that was made was a complete failure, and it was enough that Joseph Smith described uh, the following. He said, the elders and all present 
that witnessed this vain attempt of man to imitate the language of Jesus Christ renewed their faith in the fullness of the gospel and in the truth of the commandments and revelations which the Lord had given to the church through my instrumentality. And the elders signified a willingness to bear testimony of their truth to all the world. That's from Manuscript History of the Church, volume A1, page 162. Um, so, here we have, the, even though we don't have exactly what William E. McClellan attempted to do, we do have a, a witness of the result of this attempt, which was failure. And this is something that's important to think about. It's worth noting that the language used in the scriptures, not just those translated by Joseph Smith or received via revelation, through Joseph Smith, but that, that in the Bible as well, all of this language is imperfect. A humorous portrayal of the imperfections of this type of language in the Bible is made in the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, in the which instructions for the holy hand grenade of Antioch are read, which says something like this. First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then thou shalt count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceedest to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. So that's the quote from Monty Python. <laughs> of course, the idea here that they're making fun of is that there are odd forms of words, um, strange repetition. Uh, there are other elements that are similar to this that may make it seem redundant or unnecessary. And that's all throughout the scriptures. Now, there are those who might suggest that a true message from God would not contain such mistakes. However, these same individuals will be slow to recall that God sends imperfect messengers all the time. I mean, thankfully, the people of Nineveh didn't nitpick the language of Jonah's message or of Jonah himself who offered it, even though both were imperfect. Receiving the correct message saved the city. The idea that the one who prompted the message is perfect and those who can hear his voice and know it, that helps us not get hung up on the style of the messenger. The Lord gave Joseph Smith revelations that used the language with which people could find and relate patterns in the Bible. And so a lot of the things that we see in the Book of Mormon that use maybe archaic forms of speech or certain phrases, it's not necessarily because that's the most eloquent thing to do. It's to help us see how everything is connected. Now, whether this language was chosen in the translation of the Book of Mormon, tying to the King James Version biblical passage, or whether it was language in the Doctrine and Covenants that used phrases and concepts 
from the Old and New Testaments, the ability of the person who's reading it to recognize the Lord can tie these things together so that they can more easily recognize the Spirit of God as they study and as they receive personal revelation themselves with these functional patterns, which is also an imperfect process. People receive their own personal revelation and can become confused as to what exactly it means and whether it comes from the Lord. These scriptural imperfect examples that we have in the scriptures, vital, vital to us learning eventually true beauty and eloquence that comes from the source of all truth. All right, let's talk about literal descendants of Aaron. If we look in section 68, verses 15 through 20, we get this reading. Wherefore, they shall be high priests who are worthy, and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. And if they be literal descendants of Aaron, they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are firstborn among the sons of Aaron. For the firstborn holds the right of the presidency over this priesthood, and the keys or authority of the same. No man has a legal right to this office to hold the keys of the priesthood, except he be a literal descendant and the firstborn of Aaron. But as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found, provided he is called and set apart and ordained unto this power under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. And a literal descendant of Aaron also must be designated by this presidency and found worthy and anointed and ordained under the hands of this presidency. Otherwise, they are not legally authorized to officiate in their priesthood. Okay, so here's our passage. Um, frequently, I think in the, in the latter days, when we're talking about um, heritage, um, emphasis is placed on individuality. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. A man is not condemned for the sins of his parents. He's his own individual. The blessings of Israel are available to all by adoption. Even if you were not born and are a literal descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can be a part of the gathering of Israel and a recipient of those blessings. And also numerous passages throughout the scriptures that indicate we are all children of God, all are alike unto God, uh, is what is taught in the Book of Mormon. Now, occasionally we'll see some passages that seem to place a different emphasis, something on family lines, on who is firstborn, or on some sort of ethnic heritage. And this passage that we read appears to be one such case in which a literal descendant of Aaron has a, quote, legal right to the bishopric. Members of the church may recall times, if you've been a member of the church for, for some time, you may recall a, a situation in which the bishopric of your ward was changed. 
and frequently during this time, they'll talk about, um, you know, testimonies of being called of God and, and a variety of other things. I have never once heard someone say, well, this is actually a literal descendant of Aaron. I, I never have heard that. Maybe it's been said. I, I'm not aware of it. Um, and so this may be a question. Why don't we seem to make a bigger, bigger deal of this that's in the Doctrine and Covenants, being a literal descendant of Aaron? Now, I think there are lots of correct answers to this, and I'll put forward one idea. Um, this is evidence that God honors promises he made to individuals a long time ago. Evidence that even if something is not practical to be done in certain circumstances in the present, the Lord does not excuse himself. The covenants made in ancient times don't just expire. They don't just stop counting. The Lord keeps his promises. And this also alludes to spiritual connections between parents and children that that promises made to parents can bless the lives of their children. And as we continue to read in this section, we see more of that. So this reading is uh, section 68, verses 25 through 29. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the head of the parents. For this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, and their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old, and receive the laying on of the hands. And they shall also teach their children to pray, and to walk uprightly before the Lord. And the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now this is vital. It's, it's not the Lord's way to say, oh, you know, this is a new generation. And, you know, every individual is kind of on their own. You should pretty much ignore your parents. That's not the Lord's way. Certainly there is some importance to individuality, and everyone does need to personally come to Christ. But God actually designed parents and children to have a relationship to kind of help one another get going on the covenant path. Parents have a divine mandate to teach their children the truth. And while children have the freedom to choose their own way, parents will account to God for how they have instructed their children. This is an important thing. How? Because what will your children inherit from you? Do they know the strength of your testimony? When they think of you, do they think of your faith at all? How connected to that, uh, uh, to that is your identity to your spirituality? Do they see you pray and study the scriptures? The Lord issues a warning kind of along the same lines in verse 31. Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children 
are also growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. So this is a serious problem. We need to teach uh, in our families to lay up in store treasures in heaven. Children are entitled to both love and truth. And it's possible that a child may not interpret all truth as love, but I cannot overemphasize that offering them a pleasant lie is not offering them love. All right, last bit. Let's talk about divine equality. Here's some reading, uh, verses 12 through 14 in the next section. He, uh, he who is appointed to administer spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire, as those who are appointed to a stewardship to administer in temporal things. Yea, even more abundantly, which abundance is multiplied unto them through the manifestations of the Spirit. Nevertheless, in your temporal things you shall be equal, and not this grudgingly, otherwise the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. So we have this concept in this reading about equality, and in some things equality is a worthy goal. Poverty is absolutely a wrong that we can help alleviate by serving one another and teaching and embracing and following ourselves sound principles of work and preparation. We can seek to ensure that our neighbors have the things that they need. And it's a sweet and a good thing to provide for some desires even of individuals, particularly in difficult circumstances. That's particularly rewarding to see generous gifts given uh, at Christmas time to kids who might not have a lot otherwise. That, that can really make a big difference. This is a good thing to serve one another and to strive for increasing equality this way. Individually, while it's good to strive for equality, we should also avoid extravagance. And that's, that's important. Things that cost more because of status and not superior function may be wasteful. Like designer jeans may not be any better than Walmart jeans. I don't know. Maybe they are. I'm not really a, a fashion guy. But uh, modesty absolutely may apply to how women dress in terms of covering their bodies, but it also applies to everyone in terms of using our gifts and resources for good and not for self-promotion or status. These sorts of inequality-promoting things we can alleviate, at least in ourselves. Now, in some things, equality is not even possible. The Lord gives to one five talents, to another two, and to a third a single talent. Do not be angry with what God gives to others. Don't grab a sickle and a hammer and demand an equal share from the Lord. 
be happy with what God has given you and use it to make life better for yourself and those around you. Because in the end, regardless of the number of spiritual manifestations and gifts, everyone gets a really good deal. You give up the dumb stuff you do to the best of your ability. You try to follow Christ the best you are able. And in exchange, you get immortality and eternal life. Seeking equality is certainly useful when it inspires you to personally serve others in wholesome ways. But if seeking equality is inspiring envy or wrath or ingratitude for what God is offering to you, equality is not, then, equal to goodness. And goodness is what we are striving for. Don't pretend that equality is the same thing. It's an inadequate substitute. Ultimately, Strive for goodness, and more equality will follow. Strive to get goodness from those who have gone before you, and to pass goodness to your posterity. Strive to hear the voice of the Lord in spite of imperfections of your fellow human beings who bring his message. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher Podcast. Next week, we will be looking at section 71 through 75, Defending Against the Enemies of the Church. There's a ton we did not cover in our reading this week. Please study that individually and with your family. And as always, fight on.